Welcome back to this week's episode of The Emily Show. This episode, I'm probably going to end up titling Trials and Tribulations. We're going to be talking about the pending trial of Jalene Maxwell and Elizabeth Holmes takes the stand in her own defense. And there's a little bit happening ahead of Josh Duggar appearing in court for trial. All of those things are going on this week. Some things will probably happen before this episode airs, because as I record this, it's before, of course, courts open on Monday. So there will be some updates. And if there are, they will be on my social media at the Emily D. Baker on Twitter and Instagram and down in the show description below. And I will be touching on them probably on Friday Night Live, which is my live stream I do every Friday on YouTube at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. We should just get into it. The the quote that came to me, because A, I'm a nerd and I like Shakespeare. B, I've been watching too much Dickinson on Apple TV. And C, I see Elizabeth Holmes taking this stand in her own defense. And the last few days of testimony that have been reported uh, before court resumes on Monday, the 29th of November, I can see the direction we're going. And I feel like um, Shakespeare this is above all to thine own self be true is exactly what's going to happen, but maybe not meant the way it was meant in Hamlet because I see Elizabeth Holmes throwing everyone else under the bus in her testimony. And I imagine in the Maxwell trial, we might see the same thing. Do they see themselves as being true to themselves? Maybe, maybe, maybe. But when you're the criminal defendant, isn't that really the only thing you have? is your own self. So we're going to just get into it. Lots and lots to talk about. I've been asked a lot about all of these cases. So hopefully this answers some questions. This is definitely not the end of my coverage of these cases because there will definitely be more to come. But remember, all three of these are in federal court. So we're not going to get the live streaming and the video on demand of it all that we get in state courts, which is so frustrating to me because all the trials I really want to see what's going on and see what's going on inside the courtroom right now are federal cases. So, you know, I'm just bummed about it. I'm just bummed about it. All right. Let us dive into today's episode. Thank you for being here. Thanks for being a honored. Hey there. Welcome to the Emily show. I'm your host, Emily D Baker, badass lawyer and everyone's favorite legal commentator, breaking down the legal shit in the news and pop culture stories you want to talk about. I've been a licensed attorney for over 15 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I'm a big fan of the cursey words. So let's break it down. Well, before we get all the way, all the way into it, I want to say a big thank you. A huge thank you to today's sponsor, Quip. You know that I've been working with Quip for a little while now, and I think it's brilliant. One, their toothbrushes are great and comfortable, but today I'm going to show you their dental floss. I know flossing is not something you always think about, but you need to do it. And Quip makes it really easy. I don't like the way flossing feels. I don't like having floss on my fingers and trying to like have them in my mouth. It just, I, I hate it the most. But Quip has a great refillable little flosser. It comes in different colors. It has a mirror inside of it so you can floss on the go. I keep this legitimately in my purse, but the flosser just loads floss right from here, clips it off, and then you can just 
dispose of the used floss so you're not reusing multiple flossings on one little grabber. And it's really easy to open up, grab the floss, toss the floss. I love that. And then you're not throwing away a ton of single-use plastic little grabbers. And you can just refill this. Look, it's magnetic. It's great. But you can just refill the floss on the back here. And that's all that you are dealing with. And it is all recycled materials. So it is not wasteful. It is compact and easy to take with you. You don't have to worry about whether anyone told you if you have food in your teeth or not because you've got this handy little mirror. I love that you can just set a subscription to have floss come to your house, to have toothbrush heads come to your house. They also have a mouthwash that is concentrate that you add water to. So it reduces large bottles of waste. I love that the company is not just mindful for what's usable and easy to use as a consumer, but also towards the environment. If you would like to give Quip a try, I've got a deal for you. Go ahead and head to getquip.com slash Emily show right now to get your first refill free. That's right. First refill free at getquip.com slash Emily show spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Emily show. Quip the Good Habits Company. You can also, if you're on YouTube, the link will be down below and the link will be in the show notes. Thank you again for sponsoring this episode, Quip. And tr you guys, I'm telling you, try the floss. The toothbrushes are great. The floss is also magic. Just try it. Let's get into the Duggar updates of it all real quick because it's the shortest topic I'm covering today. And if you are watching on YouTube or if you are listening to the podcast and would like to watch on YouTube, these are always timestamped. So you can jump to the topic that interests you most. Josh Duggar has been indicted on two counts of possessing uh, illegal images of children doing things that are illegal. So that is what he is being prosecuted for. That's what he's going to trial for. I've been covering this uh, case quite a lot on the YouTube channel, not as much here on the podcast, but there were a ton of motions in lemonade as the law nerds have decided to rename them the motions in lemonade. Uh, some of them are, are very interesting. There were numerous motions in lemonade before trial from both the government and Josh Duggar's defense team. Most of them were ruled on. I wasn't surprised by any of the rulings. The court set aside Josh Duggar's prior instances of conduct in the realm of the um, improper and illegal touching of minors while he was also a minor. That was quite a large scandal. Josh Duggar is a or was a television personality from the Duggar's 19 Kids and Counting show on TLC. And as this comes up to trial on the 30th, Tuesday, the motion is set for November 29th. So they will be in court to hear the motion on whether those prior juvenile acts where he did counseling and they were, you know, juvenile acts, so the records are sealed, whether those will be allowed into trial or whether there are things that would open the door for those to be allowed. For instance, if Josh Duggar testified and there are things he could do or say that would then make these very relevant and the government might then revisit the issue. So there is going to be an evidentiary hearing on this with the government and Duggar's attorneys. The court, when they set that hearing on November 19th, they also set a very expensive 
explicit order that there is to be no recording or electronic devices in the courtroom for that. Um, I didn't see anywhere where this hearing would be available to the public. And since they are talking about juvenile documents that are generally sealed and not publicly available, I am not surprised by that. Uh, it, we will see on motions what the court rules on, and I will touch on that when there is a ruling. Again, if you're interested in that case, just stay tuned on my social medias, and that's where I will keep you updated on the Duggar case. I think as I have said, um, every time we've talked about this case, the government has a very strong case, and they laid a lot of that out at the detention hearing back in May. This has gone to trial fairly quickly. The defendant, who is, again, innocent until proven guilty, has a right to a speedy trial. And all things considered, this trial has moved along very quickly. Of course, it is, at, you know, the feds, they had this investigation done when they presented it to the grand jury. So all that's left is for really the defense to catch up and then get this moving towards trial. And they have moved very quickly towards trial on this. So I, ugh, I can't imagine this trial will be more than a few weeks long, if that. But depending on how long jury selection takes. This is in um, an Arkansas district. That is where the Duggars family is quite prominent. His father is currently uh, running for office. It's very strange, the timing of all of that for me. But this is a prominent family in an area. So jury selection might take a little bit of time, given the fact that there will be jurors who are either familiar with the Duggars, go to church with the Duggars, or know someone in their family. I mean, 19 kids and counting, it's a lot of Duggars. So trying to find a jury that can be um, fair and impartial to this defendant on these charges might prove challenging. So I will be very interested to see how jury selection goes. Speaking of jury selection, jury selection is over in the Jaleen Maxwell case, and that is getting ready to start opening statements on Monday the 29th. So let's talk about that. For those of you who have not been following this case or the Jeffrey Epstein case, I'm going to give a brief kind of timeline overview of it. And then what I think we will see in court, jury selection did call in over 600 individuals to be potentially seated as the jury. And as this was getting ready for trial starting Monday, November 29th, uh, Julie Maxwell gave a interview to the Daily Mail UK. So there's a lot happening. There are motions that were just filed in court uh, as this case is getting ready to begin, and a lot has happened, like a lot has happened. So it's not going to be all of the things. It's going to be a summary and then what's going on right as trial starts. And the fascination with this case, I think people are hoping that there will be more information about who Jeffrey Epstein was providing minors to or trafficking minors to and the big names that are involved here. I don't know if we'll see this in this trial. If there were big names that Maxwell was going to kind of throw under the bus to save herself, I would imagine she wouldn't be putting herself through a trial. And some of the conditions that she's been kept in in custody make me wonder if, um, A, if she's exaggerating, always possible, or B, if um, keeping her in custody would generally induce someone, not induce in an improper way, but generally kind of sway someone told, look, at least I won't be in the detention center anymore. Why stick it out for, you know, over a year and, and a half at this point to go to trial if, if 
I don't, if the defendant doesn't believe in their innocence or if they just want to be kept in, in better conditions, given how much she has excoriated the conditions she's living in and the strength of the language her attorneys are using in motions against her conditions, saying that it's like something out of silence of the lambs. They have moved to get her bail multiple times. The court has denied it multiple times and we'll get there. But a rough timeline on this really starts back in July, 2019 with Jeffrey Epstein being arrested at Titabaro Airport. Tita Burrow, Tita Barrow, Partridge in a Pear Tree. No, Tita Burrow Airport, New York, immediately after returning from France. Uh, he was he was arrested and held with regard to trafficking minors for inappropriate activities, inappropriate adult activities. And y'all listening to the podcast are like, it's a podcast, Emily. You can just say whatever. Yes, I can. It's a podcast, and we can say whatever, but also YouTube. <laughs> So I will try to uh, be mindful of the things we can say and can't say. But also as I get into Julie Maxwell's indictment, I might just say screw it. And we might just use the real words as we're talking about the real news and the real world and things that happens. And maybe I've just convinced myself that like, fuck it, let's just call it what it is. And if we get demonetized, we get demonetized because who cares? This is what's going on in the world. And we should just be able to talk about the atrocities that are being alleged here and and call them what they are by name. I've just worked myself back around to speech should be free, the crimes are the crimes, and we should call the crimes what they are because sensitizing them and downplaying them kind of feels icky to me. It's like the the victims at this point, the alleged victims, because again, this is going to criminal trial. There is the presumption of innocence. The defendants are presumed innocent until proven otherwise, but the allegations are horrific. And we know that this happens in the world. Even if these defendants didn't do this, we know that this happens in the world and we should just be able to talk about it because, uh, sex trafficking is a huge issue. It is an issue for minors. It is something that people are groomed for and grooming minors to traffic them to the rich, um, politically connected and older men to prey on them is, is a horrific. And, and we're going to hear a whole lot about it as we talk about this case. So as we know, um, just from history on August 10th, 2019, Epstein was found dead in the Manhattan detention center where he was being kept. He had been on suicide watch. He was removed from suicide watch. The two officers on duty were subsequently investigated, but not charged because they were supposed to be checking on him, but then didn't, but then uh, altered their reports to indicate that they had been checking on him. There is still quite a lot of speculation and some conspiracy speculation about whether or not Epstein was actually uh, someone who took their own life or whether his life was taken and it was made to look like he took his own life. I don't know if we have answers to that question. Um, I will leave you to determine or go down that rabbit hole on what you believe. But Epstein, I imagine, has a or had um, quite a list of names of of people at all levels in not just the US, but in the UK as well. And we'll talk about the Prince Andrew of it all in a little bit. So there is lots and lots of speculation. After that happened, um, Julie Maxwell, who had been his longtime girlfriend and associate, worked for him, all the things, was, you know, kind of went underground after his death and then was arrested July 2nd in 2020 on a fairly extensive indictment 
She maintains that she had no part in Epstein's, Epstein's crimes, that she was not kind of the madam or Epstein's bottom bitch, if you were, that she was not the one grooming minors, that she was not the one who was handling people, that this was not what she was doing, that she was his you know, ex-girlfriend and associate, but she was not a part of his crimes. Uh, March 29th, 2021, there was a new grand jury and a new indictment handed down. We're going to go over the superseding indictment real quick. Um, the differences, I'm going to tell you the differences in the superseding indictment, and then I'll go through all of the charges. So if you are watching on YouTube, you will see that pull up. Otherwise, I will be reading through that in a moment. Count one extended the time frame of the trafficking from 1997 to 2004 because a new um, victim came forward or was uncovered in the investigation by law enforcement. So now this is uh, minor victim number four, as they are referred to throughout the documents, and they are alleged as a victim between 2001 and 2004. Count three extended the conspiracy from 1997 through 2004. Count five added new allegations of sex trafficking in a conspiracy from 2001 to 2004, alleging the victim four as the victim of that. Count six added a new charge of sex trafficking a minor and aiding and abetting sex trafficking a minor um, as to minor victim four. And then count seven and eight are renumbered from the previous indictment. So they took this case back to grand jury while Maxwell was in custody with the new um, the newly discovered and turned over victim. Let's pull that indictment up now. Count one, conspiracy to entice minors to travel to engage in illegal sexual acts. The overview of that is the charges set forth stem from the role of Julie Maxwell, the defendant in the sexual exploitation and abuse of multiple minor girls by Jeffrey Epstein, in particular from at least in or about 1994 up to and including 2004, Maxwell assisted, facilitated, and contributed to Epstein's abuse of minor girls by, among other things, helping him to recruit, groom, and ultimately abuse victims known to Maxwell and Epstein to be under the age of 18. The victims were as young as 14 years old when they were groomed and abused by Maxwell and Epstein, both of whom knew that certain victims were in fact under the age of 18. As part of and in furtherance of their scheme to abuse minor victims, Maxwell, the defendant, and Epstein enticed and caused minor victims to travel to Epstein's residences in different states, which Maxwell knew and intended would result in their grooming for and subjugation to sexual abuse. Moreover, in an effort to conceal her crimes, Maxwell repeatedly lied when questioned about her conduct, including a relation to some of the minor victims described herein when providing testimony under oath in 2016. They go into the factual background in this a bit. I'm not going to delve into all of it, but it talks about Maxwell attempting to befriend some of the minor victims prior to their abuse, including asking the victims about their lives, their schools, their families. Maxwell and Epstein would spend time building friendships with the minor victims. This, as it's described, they are describing the pattern of grooming and the behavior of grooming. I've talked about that in other content. It is not uncommon as a way to overcome a victim's natural like, oh no, that's fucking wrong. I would, what? I'm not doing that. But as you, as adults, groom minors into a position of trust, it overcomes those red flags. And it's like, well, where if they say it's okay, I trust them. And that's where these power dynamics really play heavily into the grooming of minors. And this is 
in the background of it, what they're describing is how they're developing a friendship with minors as they are. And it's not as if they are close in age at all. It's, this is not a, you know, 18 year old who's friends with a 16 year old because they still go to the same high school. These are full ass adults grooming children. Some of these outings, they say they would take the uh, minor victims to movies or shopping. I imagine that the parents of the minors allowed this based on status and power, which, you know, those power dynamics are very powerful and have played into other high profile grooming cases. They go on to say some of these outings would involve Maxwell and Epstein spending time together with a minor victim, while some would involve Maxwell or Epstein spending time with them alone. Having developed a rapport with a victim, Maxwell would normalize sexual abuse for a minor victim by, among other things, discussing sexual topics, undressing in front of the victim, being present when the minor victim was undressed, or being present for sex acts involving the minor uh, victim and Epstein. Once again, using that position of power to normalize abuse to be like, no, this is just what, this is what adults do. Ugh. Maxwell's presence during minor victims' interactions with Epstein's, including interactions where the minor victim was undressed or that involved sexual acts with Epstein, helped put the victims at ease because an adult woman was present. For example, in some interactions, Maxwell would massage Epstein in front of a minor victim. In other instances, Maxwell encouraged minor victims to provide massages to Epstein, including sexualized massages, uh, during which the minor victim would be full or partially nude. Many of these massages resulted in Epstein sexually abusing the minor victims. They go on to detail other forms of grooming and abuse and the um, traveling and the trafficking of minors across state lines to include a multi-story private residence on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, New York, owned by Epstein, and a state in Palm Beach, Florida, owned by Epstein, a ranch in Santa Fe, New Mexico, Maxwell's personal residence in London. Additionally, um, beginning in at least in or about 2001, Maxwell and Epstein enticed and recruited and caused to be enticed and recruited minor girls to visit Epstein's Palm Beach residence and engage in sex acts with Epstein, after which Epstein, Maxwell, and another employee of Epstein would give the victims hundreds of dollars in cash. Epstein and Maxwell encouraged one or more of these victims to travel with Epstein with the intention that the victim engage in sex acts with Epstein. Moreover, in order to maintain and increase the supply of victims, Epstein, Maxwell, and other employees would pay certain victims to recruit additional girls to be similarly abused by Epstein. And this trafficking does not just, I should intersect and say, does not just take place um, amongst the wealthy, that having girls recruit other girls and having um, people recruit others into behaviors of criminality happens in not just you know, the gang level trafficking of women, which happens uh, with street gangs in major cities, but also in narcotic sales um, and things like that. So this is this pattern is not unfamiliar to well, to me because because of past work in in the criminal, you know, criminal prosecution. but this this is a very typical pattern of how these things uh, escalate in cases like this. So it's, you know, going through it all laid out, it's like, yep, that, yep, that's how, that's how that works. And then, you know, it's powerful when you have someone, the victim's age saying to them, no, come on, this is, we make money, we do this. It's all great. It's fine. It, again, it normalizes the illegal trafficking and 
So when people who aren't familiar with these patterns of behavior and criminal prosecutions, it's like, well, how does this happen? This is how this happens. That's why there are laws to prevent minors from being exploited because minors can be exploited. They are minors. They are not full-grown adults. Even adults make bad choices. But this is not a choice with these victims. This is this is overwhelming someone with not just position of power, but also with money, normalizing it. This is where the grooming comes in so that the minor feels that they're making a choice, even though they have been groomed and abused. And that is why the thing is happening. Hopefully that makes sense. The indictment continues to talk about the time from 2001 to 2004, where Maxwell and Epstein encouraged and enticed one or more victims to engage in paid sex acts through a variety of means and method, including um, calling the victim to schedule appointments for massages at Epstein's Palm Beach residence. Maxwell placed at least some of those calls with Epstein in Manhattan, New York. Epstein would travel from New York to Florida and schedule appointments. It goes on to talk about the victim engaging in nude or semi-nude massage and then being abused. They talk in much more detail about what that entails, which we are just not going to go into because A, I don't think it's necessary, but B, it's kind of horrifying. I imagine that that victim will testify about the sexual abuse because that is the um, added victim for, and will be talking about that in in trial in you know the next few weeks here because it starts Monday. They talk about the different uh, minor victims that are laid out in the case, and the court has recently ruled that the victims will be allowed to be referred to as minor victim one, two, three, and four, and it goes through how each of these minor victims were brought into. Uh, this ring to be trafficked, how they were approached, how this was normalized to them, and the different types of abuse each of them um, each of them sustained, with minor victim number one being 14 years old during this, minor victim number two uh, being under the age of 18, but they do not delineate further how old that was a minor victim who was abused in New Mexico uh, back in 1996. They talk about minor victim number three, who was also under the age of 18 and in a time span between 1994 and 1995 in New Mexico. And then minor victim number four, who was recruited in uh that time span of 2001 to 2004 and was primarily connected with the Palm Beach residents. They then go on to talk about Maxwell's efforts to conceal her conduct, saying that in or about 2016, in the context of a deposition as part of civil litigation, Maxwell, the defendant, repeatedly provided false and perjurious statements under oath regarding, among other subjects, her role in facilitating the abuse of minor victims by Jeffrey Epstein. So, Rather than taking the fifth, Maxwell, they are alleging lied at deposition and perjured herself at a sworn deposition in 2016. And that would have been in connection with the lawsuit regarding Virginia Guffrey, who sued Maxwell and others. She is an accuser that has come forward. Well, she's a victim and accuser that has come forward with regard to both Maxwell, Epstein, and Prince Andrew. Um, She has said that she will be present at Maxwell's trial. A lot of the documents that were contained in her civil suit 
against Maxwell have come forward and have come forward and been unsealed, including uh, an extensive kind of unpublished tell-all about the different individuals that were involved and the different, um, you know, not just celebrities, but politicians and even royalty like Prince Andrew, who were involved in um, Epstein's circle and having minors provided to them. Interestingly enough, her attorney is, at the time was David Boyce and had showed up with her to court in a number of court hearings in the Epstein criminal prosecution before his death. And David Boyce is a name you will remember from the Theranos case. We will talk about his role later because testimony just came up last week about him. I do not know if David Boyce is still working with or representing uh, Virginia, but we will see as she comes to court in the Maxwell trial, because I'm sure that that will be reported on because it factors in very heavily. And in the civil lawsuit, there has been quite a lot going on as different news and media agencies have been requesting things to be unsealed and requesting access to different court documents from that case. In finishing up the count one, and yes, we are still talking about count one. You're like, Emily, we've wandered far afield. Yes, we've gone everywhere. But in finishing up count one, they allege the overt acts that played a role in that count. Then into count two, which was enticement of a minor to travel to engage in illegal sexual acts. They allege the specific minors. Count three, conspiracy to transport minors with intent to engage in criminal sexual activity. Count four, transportation of a minor with intent to engage in criminal sexual activity. And again, these are the trafficking counts. Count five, sex trafficking conspiracy. And they allege the overt acts. Count six, sex trafficking of a minor. And this is with regard to um, victim four from 2001 to 2004. Count seven, perjury with regard to the April 22, 2016 deposition. And they list out the parts that are false testimony because if you're doing a perjury count, you have to. So we're, I'm just going to share that now because one, I find it interesting. And two, we don't always see people actually charged with perjury. It says, quote, did Epstein have a scheme to recruit underage girls for sexual massages? If you know, I don't know what you're talking about was the answer. And the answers are from Maxwell. And then question, list all the people under the age of 18 that you interacted with at any of Jeffrey's properties. A answer, I am not aware of anybody that I interacted with other than obviously the plaintiff who was 17 at this point, plaintiff in that case being uh, Virginia Guffrey, who we have talked about. Count eight, perjury, and then they allege a second count of perjury also from a deposition. This is from a July 22nd, 2016 deposition. Question, were you aware of the presence of sex toys or devices used in sexual activities in Mr. Epstein's Palm Beach house? Answer, no, not that I recall. Question, do you know whether Mr. Epstein possessed sex toys or devices used in sexual activities? Answer, no. Question, other than yourself and the blonde and brunette that you identified as having been involved in a three-way sexual activities, with whom did Mr. Epstein have sexual activities? Answer, I wasn't aware that he was having sexual activities with anyone when I was with him other than myself. Question, I want to be sure that I'm clear. Is it your testimony that in the 1990s and 2000s, you were not aware that Epstein was having sexual activities with anyone other than yourself and the blonde and brunette on those few occasions when they were involved with you? Answer, that is my testimony. That is correct. Question, is it your testimony that you've never given anybody a massage? 
Answer, I have not given anyone a massage. Question, you never gave Mr. Epstein a massage. Is that your testimony? Answer, that is my testimony. Question, you never gave minor victim two a massage. Is that your testimony? Answer, I never gave minor victim two a massage. And of course, the name is redacted out in the deposition. It would have had the name. Um, They are going under name of anonymity in all of this trial, but you will still have the accusers known to the defendants. The defense has a right to confront their accusers under the Constitution, of course, and they will still be present in court giving testimony. So there will still be that confrontation. It's just for um, for the purposes of media, et cetera, their names will still be um, under minor victim one, two, three, and four. They then get into the forfeiture allegations, which is part of if you are convicted, we can, you know, take your shit. And that is the end of the Maxwell indictment. So they jury will be presented with quite a substantial amount of evidence from um, minor victims one through four. There's been a lot of pretrial motions with regard to minor victim three. And one of the things that has come up in pretrial motions most recently is the uh, victim fund that was paid out to a number of Epstein's victims and whether that information will be turned over to the prosecution and the defense. That information has just been given to the court. The court will be having hearings on it and giving out um, or redacting out what is appropriate to be given to the lawyers. The defense arguing that if accusers or victims, the defense is going to call them accusers, we are going to call them victims. But again, presumption of innocence, it's not inappropriate for the defense to refer to them as such, but bringing up whether or not they got paid and whether getting paid could have influenced their testimony, influenced why they came forward. Those are all things that the defense will delve into. It's always distasteful watching victims treated that way on the stand, but the goal of the defense is to defend the defendant on trial. And they will have to do so carefully because the allegations are horrific. The evidence that comes out, I'm sure, will be very powerful to a jury to listen to. And the defense has to be cautious about how hard they go after um, the women who take the stand. Getting into November of this year, the court has been asked again to provide bail to Jolene Maxwell. The court has denied it again. And Instead of going over the motion for bail, I was going to go over a little bit of her uh, exclusive interview with the Daily Mail, which will be linked down below, wherein she talks about the fact that she has spent 16 months in solitary confinement, which is generally not done. I, The court has not found the arguments well taken, so I don't know if the information that the court is getting from the prosecution or from the jail is that, look, she's on suicide watch. To have her on suicide watch, she has to be in in solitary. This is how we are keeping her safe, Um, or she is being protected, and this is how we are keeping her away to be protected, but 16 months in solitary would be uh, horribly damaging to anyone's mental health. She argued that she is not receiving nutritious meals, that the fluorescent lights are on 24-7. She's not been allowed to sleep without constant interruptions, that she has been deprived exercise. However, in court documents, it seems that she has um, she has chosen not to go exercise because to go exercise, she has to be patted down. And the arguments and allegations from her have been that the pat-downs have been quite intrusive and rough. And so 
to avoid the uh, intrusive pat-downs. She has chosen not to exercise. So what the lawyers filed in court has differed a little bit with what she has said to the Daily Mail. Either way, um, she is being kept really in a 10 by 12 prison cell. She was arrested just for everyone's memory at a 156 acre New Hampshire estate. So this is a, a large change of, of lifestyle, I would imagine. She also told the Daily Mail that her legal and personal mail is being tampered with and not being delivered in a timely fashion. Now, her attorneys have brought that up to the court. The court does not find that she's been deprived the ability to meaningly help with her defense, though I imagine that the defense will keep bringing it up. And I wonder how 16 months in solitary will affect the way that she presents in court. She also indicated that she has stopped showering because the creepy guards watch her while she showers. And that's not an uncommon experience in custody if either if somebody's in protection or if somebody is on suicide watch. But it's definitely something she has brought up to the Daily Mail and is not happy about. She also brought up more than once, as reported by the Daily Mail, her concerns over pretrial publicity and the way that her reputation has been maligned, the way that she's been called a socialite, which she said felt derogatory and sexist, and that all of these things have or may make it impossible to find an impartial jury and that she's not confident she is going to get a fair trial. So I can already see kind of, you already see the wheels turning from this conversation that she's being treated horribly from her, her perspective, she is being treated horribly. Um, she is uh, being deprived food. She's not being able to help with her defense. She's not getting her legal mail when she should. Uh, she's being trashed in the newspapers. She's being called a socialite and, you know, d- demeaned in a sexist way. And that she doesn't think with all that, she'll be able to get an impartial jury. So I wonder even if she is convicted, if she will ever take responsibility for whatever actions the jury may find, or if it will be all of these things coming back up to play saying, no, see, I said I couldn't get an impartial jury. The media did this to me. Others did this to me. My own actions are not what's really at issue here. It's what's been done to me. And that's really what I took away from this article. And it's interesting because that's going to play in to my feelings and thoughts on the Elizabeth Holmes trial as well. A lot of this is, well, this is what they're doing to me, this is what other people told me. And as we get into it, we will see what happens in court. Trial begins on Monday. There is going to be more to come in the court orders regarding the um, victim fund that was paid out. And I will be keeping tabs on that. So we should get into the Elizabeth Holmes case. Before we get all the way into the Elizabeth Holmes case, though, I do want to share that it is, you know, it's the beginning of December. It's a perfect time to join Patreon where you get access to the I Have Thoughts podcast, more conversation with me. And, you know, if you want to join a tier where you have access to our quarterly Zoom calls and do exclusive merchandise just for the Patreons, come on over and check out the tiers we have at lawnardsunite.com. Patreon has been such a fun way for me to engage with the, you know, over 1,200 of you that are there and a way for us to have community discussions under our posts to talk about the episodes as they come out for me to ask you for your input on what topics you want me to cover because there's so much going on and we cannot get to all of it. So the Patreons are really, uh, help me inform what content comes out on the channel and in the podcast, as well as that exclusive 
second podcast, I Have Thoughts, where I talk more about uh, really my thoughts, feelings, impressions behind the stories that we cover. Because a lot of what I cover is for you to decide how you feel about it. I do my best to break down the facts as I see them and give the legal commentary of, oh, I see a defense forming here. I see arguments forming there. But if you want the inside scoop, come check out Patreon, modernsunite.com. Okay, now let's talk about Elizabeth Holmes. So after 35 days of testimony, the prosecution has rested in the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos trial. I have numerous other uh, videos and podcast episodes about it. This is over the one finger prick of blood and whether or not she defrauded investors by telling them that the machines could do things that they couldn't, promising things that wouldn't happen. And we knew from pretrial motions that her relationship with Sonny Balwani, who had factored uh, prominently in the company Theranos, would be coming up at trial. And it seems that that's the direction that we're going in based on recent motions filed on November 24th. Court is going to resume on Monday, November 29th. But let's take a look at Elizabeth Holmes's testimony. When the government rested on November 19th, after again, 35 days of testimony, I think everyone was a little surprised when the defense called Elizabeth Holmes to the stand at the end of the day with just a few hours left to go for court, but they did. I'm not surprised. I know people are surprised. I'm not surprised when I've covered her and looked at this case and looked at the things that she's put out there. I think personally that A, she is a good saleswoman. She comes across polished. She always has in every interview I've seen with her. She has gone toe to toe with massive interviewers and is used to being on a big stage. She also strikes me as someone who thinks very highly of themselves. So I'm not surprised that she is going to say the best person to tell this jury about what happened here is me. And again, these are fraud allegations. She has to prove that she wasn't defrauding people by giving them a reasonable doubt. And the reasonable doubt it seems that she is running towards is, I was told by everyone that this worked. I believe that this worked. I wasn't defrauding anyone. These are my beliefs based on what I was told by my team. And we're starting to see that parse out, not just in the pretrial motion to admit Sunny Balwani's prior testimony and depositions, but also in her own testimony from the 19th, the 23rd. And yeah, those are the, those are the main days of testimony I have notes on. Uh, she also testified on the 22nd. So those be the 19th, 22nd, 23rd, before the Thanksgiving break for court. In her testimony over, over those three days, she has expressed some remorse over mistakes that she made, including adding like the Pfizer logo to documents that were going to Walgreens to, to try to sell Walgreens into this $140 million deal. And while the government's going to say, see, this is fraudulent, she is arguing in her testimony, no, we had done work before and I wanted to prove that we had done work. So I'm trying to show, you know, that we did work, but maybe making it seem like Pfizer was um, supporting this or had had verified this in some way. She also testified that David Boyce, who we just talked about with relation to the Maxwell case, um, who was the legal counsel and board member, had advised her not to tell investors and retail partners that Theranos begun using a modified Siemens machine. Now, what's come up a lot in this trial is that 
Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos were selling that they had this one little compact device that they were doing all their lab tests in one spot, like an entire lab distilled into a box and it could do everything. But what was really happening is they were getting blood from, you know, the testing centers in Walgreens and elsewhere, sending them back to the lab and then running it on machines that they had modified those Siemens machines. Well, those machines are FDA approved to take a certain amount of blood, a much larger blood draw. But Elizabeth Holmes was selling everyone that she could do it on just one finger prick of blood. So they had to modify the machine to do a finger prick of blood, which I think violates the FDA approval because the machine was approved to run a certain way and they were modifying the machine. She testified that Boyce told her that the modified device was a trade secret and that if larger companies learned that they could steal that invention, that modifying this, uh, this device in a way that violated the FDA approval it seems, would would be a trade secret. Um, so again, this testimony with regard to what she was told by counsel is going to lead to, I believed what I was told. I believed what I was told by counsel. I believed what I was told by Sunny Balwani. I believed what I was told by all these people I hired around me, the head of the lab and the head of here and there. And I believed that Theranos could perform any blood test based on what I was being told. And so I was just repeating the information as I knew it. And sometimes I was repeating what the company would do or could do in the future. That's not me defrauding. That's me just sharing what I believed. And her state of mind is critical in a fraud case. Did she believe her bullshit or not? And will a jury believe it? And that's going to be very interesting as we come down to what the jurors believe. And if you want me, the indictment I've gone over in other uh, in other content, I will link that down below. So on November 24th, leading uh, during the Thanksgiving break, before we get into court on Monday, her team made a motion to admit uh, some emails that had previously been kept out, but now might be relevant that Holmes is testifying and prior statements made by Sonny Balwani because Sonny Balwani is an unavailable witness. He's an unavailable witness because he is pending trial. Remember, the defense is the one who moved to separate this trial and try Elizabeth and Sonny separately, not the prosecution. And they are now seeking to use his prior statements that he made in not just uh, depositions, but also in investigations by the SEC and others against, well, against him, but to prove reasonable doubt. So the Motion filed included a request to include or allow testimony from an August 9th SEC uh, deposition, an August 10th SEC deposition, a September 7th SEC deposition, an October 11th, 2019 SEC deposition, a uh, November 23rd, 2015 subpoena from the SEC to Theranos, and then others other depositions from the SEC to Theranos, and then also using subpoenas issued by grand juries to Theranos to bring in documentary evidence. So it will be very interesting to see what the court does with this because Balwani was deposed, but he's not going to be on the stand. He's not going to be able to be cross-examined. And while this generally wouldn't be testimony the government could bring against Elizabeth Holmes because you have the right to confront your accuser, they are trying to bring this testimony in to prove doubt. See, Elizabeth is just relying on what Balwani told her. He's really the bad guy. It's really him. And just pointing this finger at the empty chair. And I've talked about that in previous content as well, that it makes it harder for the government 
to get around reasonable doubt. If the jury says, well, maybe he did tell her that, and maybe that's what she believed. And therefore, maybe she wasn't trying to defraud them. Maybe it was him and not her. It's a little easier when both defendants for the prosecution, that is, it's easier for the prosecution when both defendants are there in the chair. So with that, we may or may not see information about uh, relational abuse or domestic abuse in that relationship because there were pretrial motions about it and it might come up in Holmes's testimony. And that's what I'll be keeping an eye for. How much is she leaning into? I listened to this person who had a, uh, a position at my company, or I listened to someone I was in a relationship with, or I was being um, subjected to control and abuse by someone I was in a relationship with who I gave a role at my company and I was just doing what they said. And therefore I wasn't defrauding anyone. I was just being controlled again to thine own self be true. I think Elizabeth Holmes is going to throw everyone she interacted with under the bus and say that she believed everything was fine. And she is going to try to sell that to a jury. Do you believe it? Will they believe it? Let me know on social media and for the Patreons. We'll be talking about this over there. What do you What do you think they're going to do? It's going to be very interesting to see. And maybe we will end up getting a jury verdict in this case before the new year. And when we do, I will definitely talk about it. Stay tuned to my content on social media as stuff happens in this case. I will be following it a little more closely as some of the other cases that I was looking at have concluded. And thank you for being a honored. Thank you for being here. It's time to raise a glass. It's time to raise a glass and hopefully get the outro right. <laughs> we try. We always try. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your family be well. And may the odds be ever in your favor. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being a honored. I'll talk to you next week. 